You are listening to Explore by the Cycling Podcast. Hello, this is Lionel Burney here to introduce this episode of Explore by the Cycling Podcast. This time we've handed the mic to our producer Adam Bowie, who rode the 2023 Etape du Tour in the summer. You may remember his excellent episode of Explore a couple of years ago when he took on the 350km King Alfred's Way route in the south of England. Well, this time he's in the French Alps for the Etape, which took him from Animas to Morzine. For those who've not heard of it, the ATAP gives thousands of cyclists a chance to experience riding the route of a Tour de France stage on closed roads each July. And this year's event marked the 30th anniversary of an event that's grown into one of the largest mass participation rides in the world, with more than 16,000 riders from 70 countries rolling out to tackle a course which featured the Col de Coup, Col de Faux, Col de la Ramaz and the Col de Juplain. Although it's not a race, the ATAP does crown the first riders to cross the line, and the first event in 1993 was won by Christophe Rinero, a Frenchman who five years later won the King of the Mountains jersey in the Tour de France. More recently, Victor Lafay won the 2018 ATAP, and this July he crossed the line first in Stage 2 of the Tour de France in San Sebastian, of course. But not everybody is there aiming to get over the line first. For some, just riding a stage of the Tour de France and giving themselves some kind of impression of what it must be like to do this day after day for three weeks in July is what the whole experience is all about. If you'd like to ride in 2024, the attack will cover the course of stage 20 of the Tour de France from Nice to the Col de Cuyol, over three calls on the way before the uphill finish where Richie Port and Tadej Pogacar have won stages of Paris-Nice in recent years. There are several packages put on by tour operators, but general registrations open on Tuesday, October the 31st, so if you want to be on the start line in Nice on July the 7th next year, you better be quick. Anyway, we're going to join Adam on a reconnaissance ride in the Alps a few days before the Etape du Tour 2023. Hello, this is producer Adam, and I'm here for another episode of Explore as I take on the 2023 Etape du Tour, which runs from Annemasse through to Morzine and replicates a full stage of the Tour de France. But I'll talk more about exactly the stage and everything later on. You find me at the Col de Glière altitude 1440 meters as the sign here says which is on the plateau des Glières, which affords absolutely stunning views over the valley you might be able to hear cowbells in the background and lots of cows here honestly this is completely sort of traditional alpine views it's absolutely stunning uh, I'm here to, it's Tuesday before the attack, which takes place on a Sunday and so my plan was to do a few rides to get some actual mountains in the legs a little bit so that I'm not tackling long climbs cold as it were from the UK where really if I can get a climb that lasts more than 15 minutes you're doing well, certainly in my part of the UK anyway. 
the cycling podcast very own Lizzie Banks lives and trains not too far away from here so I tapped her up for some route suggestions and she's furnished me with this one which apparently includes a little bit of off-road a little bit further up um, she's of course is away doing the Giro Donne at the moment so thanks very much for that route Lizzie she's given me a few more routes as well so I'll, I'll report back on those I arrived in France, well, via Switzerland yesterday, flying into Geneva, and that wasn't without its fun and games. Um, sort of, I, I don't know, a lot of people are familiar with the fun and games of taking a bike on a plane, but this is the first time I've flown with this bike or flown with this bike in this way. Um, I'm probably more used to either cars or train journeys with my bike. And my first rookie mistake really was not to show up to the airport with about two and a quarter hours to go before the flight. Not when it's the beginning of July, even a weekday and it's Luton Airport. The uh, check-in queue was hideous. It took absolutely ages. I had to go that through that queue to get the luggage label for my bike to then take to the second queue for the oversized baggage. Then awful security queue beyond that all the time i'm looking at my watch as it's ticked down going how am i going to get to my flight in time let's just say i ran non-stop from the exit of security all the way through to the gate really quite fast actually uh, which probably made me a little unpleasant for my fellow passengers next to me but uh, it had to be done because i only just made my flight uh, budget airlines do like to uh, leave in a timely fashion of course one thing I did try this time round which added another level of anxiety was I put a Apple AirTag on my bike bag just so I could track the bag basically I wanted to see you know be able to tell where the bike was did it make it onto the plane at the other end if there are any issues um, it's kind of useful for that sort of thing I think it might just add an extra level of stress though because I was sitting on the plane checking my phone to see where the bike was and all I was getting was last updated 15 minutes ago and the bike clearly on the other side of the airport from where I was sitting on the tarmac. Anyway, then I suddenly saw the bike at the last minute being driven in a second load of baggage and I saw it go onto the, onto the plane and uh, they didn't seem to manhandle it as well. I mean, that's the other fear, of course, isn't it? That they're sort of using your bike bag as a trampoline or something. At the other end, easily off the plane and uh, on very efficient Swiss rail trains through to um, into France and Annemasse, where I'm staying. Resembling the bike went straightforwardly, although then I discovered something wrong with my DI2 battery, which probably serves me right for having a DI2 setup. And that took a bit of sorting out, actually. I thought at first my cable wasn't properly charging. Maybe the battery had gone down during the flight. That's always possible. Something rubbing and maybe flattened it. Trip to a bike shop didn't help. And the second bike shop, the mechanic showed me actually there was nothing wrong with my thing. It was charging absolutely fine. I went back to the hotel. It seemed to charge fine. My battery's 100%. I'm all good. Uh, it's just a little bit of a nice panic just to start you off on a week-long trip. Anyway, I better get on. Uh, Lizzie promises me a section of gravel coming up. 
so I'm gonna go and do that and then I'm hoping that it's mostly downhill uh, I've done about 50k probably got about another 40k to go but it must be mostly downhill I think back to Animas so I will report later The ore category climb of the Monte du Plateau des Glières was last used in the 2018 Tour de France on stage 10, which was won by Julien Alaphilippe. Um, it came halfway through the stage and was notable, I guess, mostly for the fact that Chris Froome punctured up there and then had a bit of a... A uh, bad moment when he was given a wheel by a teammate and then that wheel was punctured as well, but he got back on, although that was obviously the edition of the tour that was run by Garant Thomas. Fortunately, I didn't suffer any punctures up at the top there. Essentially, you have to take on a 1.8 kilometer or so section of gravel road, which joins up the two elements of tarmac. I was actually coming up the side opposite to the way they came up in 2018, which was probably a good thing because the six kilometer climb at an average of 11.2% looked absolutely tortuous on that side. The climb on my side was longer, but it wasn't as steep a gradient as that. The Plateau des Glières was an important place for the resistance during the Second World War. Um, it was strategically very strong with minimal roads up to the plateau, and that made it a perfect place for the British to parachute in weapons to the 120 or so French resistance fighters who made their way up there at the end of January 1944. A couple of months later, in March 1944, the Germans launched a massive attack with perhaps up to 10,000 German troops trying to drive what was now less than 500 soldiers who were holed up on the plateau. Around 150 fighters were killed in what would be called the Battle of L'Aiglière and that became a symbol of the French resistance movement, thanks in part to radio broadcasts from London. More parachute drops would follow in August and in due course this led to the liberation of the Haute Savoie before Allied troops had actually arrived. In September 1973 a national monument to the resistance was unveiled on the plateau and it stands there to this day not so much as I understand it as a monument to the dead but as a symbol of hope while I was up there there were plenty of visitors coach parties who had driven up to the top there and were visiting the monument The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. Uh, 
Hello. Well, today you find me on the Monte du Salève, Arrivé at uh, 1295 meters. You may be able to hear there's a bit of a wind up today and the weather has changed substantially. In fact, all the weather forecasts I was checking earlier today and last night was suggesting that there was a fit middling chance of rain. I've ducked that so far, but the tops of the mountains are very much covered in clouds today. There's a bit of sun creeping through here and there. But a reminder, if you needed it, that the weather in the mountains does change quite a lot. Uh, I'm on a shorter ride than yesterday, although it's still got me up to about 1400 metres at a nearby, this is the second of a sort of twin coal ride on the, I think it's called the uh, Route du Salève. Another Lizzie Banks suggestion. Uh, thanks Lizzie. Broadly speaking, half the route's uphill and then the last 10k should be a bit downhill. And when I left you yesterday, I was just about to tackle a gravel section and then a fantastic descent off the plateau. Honestly, that was gorgeous. Saw a lot of people cycling up it. I don't know, that might have been the harder side to cycle up. I'm not sure, hard to say, but it was an absolutely spectacular descent. And then it really was almost all downhill back to Anamas where I'm staying. Today was a sort of longer, you kind of go up and around the mountain, out about 25k, reached a small town where uh, I did, at Lizzie's suggestion, stop at the bakery where they've got a very nice selection of cakes to, uh, for a little quick cafe stop and then turn around and really begin to tackle, I think it's the Col de Pieton which is the first of these double culls. So yeah, this will be another, I think yesterday I did about 2000 meters just shy of, which is probably a little more than I'd planned. And today it's gonna to be 12 to 1400 meters. So I'm not sure carrying on doing that much climbing every day is a good idea in the run up to the ETAP. So, um, I might try something a little lower level tomorrow. We'll see, we'll see. A bit of a corrections corner there. It was the Circuit du Salève that I was riding and it's the Col du Piton that I was uh, recording at. The top of the coal there does afford an amazing view over Geneva. The circuit itself is readily available online, starting and finishing in Animas. And yeah, it really is very pretty up there. Entertainingly, one of the selling points on the official website is that you won't encounter any gradients over 6%. I'll be honest, I'm not sure that's true. Um, but yeah, it is still worth riding if you're in the area. Also up the top there is the end of the Téléphérique du Salève, which uh, I think has a restaurant and great views. I say I think it was closed when I was there because they were doing some refurbishments and it was only due to be open in August. 
I was there in July, along with many thousands of other people there for the ETAP, but uh, they were locally only thinking about getting stuff ready for the start of the tourist season as far as they were concerned which was august so we were still a month out hello i'm currently standing in geneva here's an interesting thing so this is switzerland and i'm mostly staying in Annemasse, which is literally just over the border in france and today I went for a much less hilly bike ride than uh, the last few days just because I thought I'd save my legs a little bit. It's Thursday, the event is on, the big attack event is on Sunday. Anyway, I'm standing at this sort of little intersection of a pedestrian thoroughfare and I can count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine police municipal and they are ticketing anyone on a bike who's riding through uh, because it is a pedestrian area. And stopping, I've just seen a guy, he's got his son with him, the son's got a fishing rod, and you have to get your card out. I saw someone getting their card out and they paid a fine, whatever the fine is, I don't know. And you see other people dutifully pushing their bikes through. Um, Compare and contrast to Animas, where the electric scooter reigned supreme and beer on the road, on the pavement. Actually got, someone got upset on an electric scooter with me for stopping at the stop sign and because he was trying to get past me and uh, even though it was a red light and I had to stop. <laughs> so yeah, anyway, um, that's just a thing. Be very careful where you cycle in Switzerland because they can and will find you. Um, my ride today, as I say, it was about a 60k ride. It wasn't too hilly. I think it was only about six or 700 meters in total and no actual proper climbs because I just wanted something to stretch the legs and get out because the weather is nice again today. But I didn't want to um, sort of take on too many thousand meter climbs or anything stupid might do something like that tomorrow we'll see so I did basically a kind of around the lake so to, to get your bearings sort of Geneva is sort of the western end of Lake Geneva so I did this kind of loop that took me through a lot of Swiss farmland all the way around to somewhere the other side of the airport which is sort of north of the city a bit um, and then come back down along the lake's edge until circuit back to Animas and obviously you, you, know, you can make a ride like that as long as you like. What's interesting is you, you go through the borders uh, between France and Switzerland and you just basically don't even notice it. There's a couple of empty huts that once in a time might have had someone who was stamping a passport but these days it's Basically, you'd only know it because the street signs change a little bit, the road markings change in Switzerland. They don't have the gazillions of mini roundabouts that the French love to have and instead have these three roads on beef and there's this weird concentric dotted line thing going on, which kind of makes sense. You follow the dotted line for the way you're going. You can't quite work out that said who's got right of way, but you know, 
these are on quiet roads, so that's fine. Also, some really nice swift cycle paths. Um, some really, you know, not just parallel to roads, but cutting across the countryside at various points. Should just lovely and pretty well maintained as well. While I was out on my bike ride, I saw a sign to one of the CERN uh, locations, CERN being the big European research institute famed for its Large Hadron Collider, um, which is a sort of 25 kilometer circular, um, well, collider basically. It's, and I realized I must have crossed over it at a couple of points. So it's about between 50 and 150 odd metres below the ground and uh, basically they smash electrons and other small particles into one another at colossal speeds and uh, look at the things that come apart when you smash these tiny things together to look for previously undetected, undetected particles like the Higgs boson which they did find a few years ago. Anyway, I thought that was quite cool that I cycled across that so that, that was quite nice. Anyway, I finished my road back in Annamas and then actually caught the train back out here to uh, Geneva to have a look around, have a look at some of the galleries, the uh, St. Peter's Cathedral and the gargantuan numbers of incredibly expensive shops. Um, I'm staring across the water here at basically all the Swiss watch brands all have a big premises along this waterfront here one after the other and they're only interspersed by some of the French designer fashion houses as well um, it's kind of like London's New Bond Street writ large but with a uh, view of the water and in particular the geezer is it called the geezer? the jet? whatever they call the big kind of fountain thing that they have going up across the water that sound you hear or rather probably don't hear is the peace and tranquility of the monastery at the top of the I think it's the colder Saxel. So today's ride, which is the last one I'll do before the attack, uh, is 60-ish kilometres and is another Lizzie Bank suggestion. So thanks again, Lizzie, for all this help. It actually follows, takes in the first climb of the attack. But then my climb continued up to uh, a monastery just above Saxel, the little village of Saxel. Chap on an e-bike, scooting down. Um, there's actually two monasteries up here, looks like. The Chapelle Notre Dame and the monastery of the Monastère de la Transfiguration. I suppose I'm mixing my things there, I should say. The Monastère de la Transfiguration. 
and I think they're both working elements. They both seem to be working monasteries. Uh, it's basically a dead end, this road. You, you climb it for seven or eight kilometres from Saxel. And, uh, yeah, there's a couple of car parks because it's quite a nice spot for walking, lots of walks. Signs saying, please stay, stay silent around the uh, monastery. Uh, it didn't seem to stop screaming kids being particularly silent, <laughs> I saw, anyway. But you have incredible views here uh, across the Alps. I'm looking out at the area that I'll be passing through tomorrow. And in particular, in the distance, the mighty Mont Blanc. Absolutely covered in snow at the top still. Unlike most of these other peaks, most of these other peaks are not especially snow covered or there's uh, little areas of snow. I don't know what the snow season was like in this part of the world this year, but uh, what are we? The 7th of July, there's not a great deal of snow to be seen, but there still is on Mont Blanc. But yeah, the, the landscape here is stunning because these, these, these hills here, they just rise suddenly, viciously out of the landscape. And so not that distance the crow flies down, is down in the valley, probably looking down at the village where I've just come up from, Saxel, it's probably only three kilometres as the crow flies, but it sort of rapidly ascends I don't know, seven or eight hundred metres. Fantastic. Right, my ride now, that should be all my hill climbing for <laughs> in advance of Sunday now. So I am basically going to roll on back down to Animas, get changed, and then head for the sign in exposition, which is normally quite a lively affair and perhaps I'll watch the sprint stage into Bordeaux this afternoon um, because that's where the tour is. One of the odd things I would say about doing the attack is that I feel I'm very tour adjacent but not actually at the tour. So here I am in the sort of Alps tour is over in the Pyrenees there's lots of signs up all over Animas they've, they've absolutely gone to town putting signs up you every shop is running competitions to win bikes normally very inexpensive mountain bikes but nonetheless bikes um, you know deck their deck their windows out in the yellow jersey polka dot jersey the my overhead although no one seems to have got the message yet about the new darker green color everyone's still gone for the lighter green um by the station it looks like there's a massive pop-up bar that's been built for the tour yeah it's uh, absolutely um animas has gone to town but of course i'm going to be gone by the time the tour gets here um i mean that's down to me but, but the nature of uh, the way they organise this is the attack is several days. You know, the tour's not getting in until the 15th. And it will be, what, the 9th that the attack takes place. So, you know, six days beforehand. And best of all in the world, I'm not spending another six days here. And Animas isn't exactly a tourist mecca in and of itself. 
and there's only so much cycling I can probably do in a week or 10 days so yeah so on the one hand I'm lapping up the tour on the other hand I'm very distant from it it's going to be here I'll be gone uh, I'm following the tour same way as I guess most people are on television on my phone via podcasts but um, not actually at the side of the road There's thumping music, uh, lots and lots of tents, all selling you anything and everything cycling related. That means I must be at the sort of welcome exhibition, effectively, where you have to come to register. It's open on the Friday and the Saturday. Uh, it's basically it's an opportunity to sell you anything and everything cycling related uh, also it's organised like a massive Ikea in that you've got to walk a single route round people are doubling back but that's against the spirit of the thing But uh, and there's quite tight security on it you know you've probably got wandered on the way in and there are police wandering around with uh, submachine guns and so on which I guess as much as anything is to do with the whole kind of security at the moment in France and the kind of issues that they're facing. Lots of kit manufacturers, uh, sunglasses, GPSs, you name it. The local town is here, neighbouring regions are here, all trying to encourage cycle tourism in their area. Some socks, My original thought had been to watch today's stage here, but it is baking hot in the sun and the only areas of shade are fairly swamped with people. So I think that having collected my complimentary bag uh, and sort of rubbish container to carry on your bike's top tube, I'm inclined to make a move and uh, find somewhere else to watch the cycling this afternoon. That sound you can hear is an air-conditioned train sitting at Evian Le Bains station because it's the day before the attack and I decided that I wouldn't be doing any cycling so instead I've uh, having I wouldn't say necessarily exhausted and a mass but uh, I've seen it plenty I thought I would uh, 
travel up the line to Evian-les-Bains, um, which is effectively one of the sources, I think there are multiple sources really, of the Evian mineral water. Um, as far as I can make out, Evian does basically own this town and very prosperous a town it is too. Um, but you can go to uh, one of the sources, I think there's at least two sources in the town, I'm sure there's other ones, so there's no sign of a massive bottling plant anyway, um, and fill your bottles up with fresh Evian for free. And in fact, when I got there, a local was indeed filling up something like a 20 litre, in fact they had two of them, 20 litre plastic, uh, well almost like petrol cans basically, to uh, fill up with water. Can I honestly say I can tell the difference between that and any other bottled water? I can't, I don't have Francois Thomaso's uh, incredible taste for determining mineral waters and when I finished off the Vitel which was in my water bottle and then filled it with Evian I couldn't honestly say I could taste the difference apart from the fresh water was much cooler. Anyway, uh, what can I say about Evian Le Bain? It's prosperous, there's a lot of yachts on the front, some very expensive looking housing, lovely restaurants, um, yeah, very uh, nice seaside, well not seaside, lakeside resort really. There's a very nice sort of, I guess you'd call it a swim park. It's not really one of those places where there's lots of flumes and exciting things like that, but you can definitely lay out on the grass sunbathing, swim in a very large pool. There was a diving board the kids pulled. There were a couple of, um, I think, uh, the sorts of flumes that you could ride down as well. Uh, didn't bring my swimming gear, so I didn't go there. Um, instead, I kind of wandered around and rode the funicular. It's an old funicular that takes you up to the top, where, aside from a very expensive-looking hotel, um, basically you're there for the view uh, across uh, Lac Le Mans, as it's called, or Lake Geneva. Um, and in the distance, you can see Lausanne, which is on the opposite opposite side of the lake from here, home of many sporting uh, many sporting bodies um, including I believe the Olympics the uh, IOC are based over there anyway uh, it's quite a long way across the lake to the point that there's a ferry a quite large ferry that runs sort of every hour or so uh, and takes as far as I can make out 45 minutes or so to get across the lake so that gives you an idea that's a big ferry it's not 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 some guy or a little boat or anything it's, it is a long way across um, there's some fabulous looking mountain ranges at this end of the lake well I guess I'm about halfway up the lake at this point um, but yeah today we uh, just had a run through basically of where we, everyone needs to be tomorrow morning um, I've already kind of sorted all that out Funny enough, there's, there's a lot of cyclists around. Um, while I was sitting, eating a sandwich, like a fountain in uh, Evian Le Bon today, uh, I saw what I think was an Australian group who were sort of getting their bikes fixed up. Uh, and uh, as I got on the train this morning at Anamas, there were people getting off 
various bikes and bike bags. I think that's the way that you're required to carry bikes if you're on, particularly on the TGV, which TGV, which had pulled into the station this morning. So people basically reassembling their bikes at the station from their bike bags and then sort of wheeling, cycling with large amounts of gear to whatever accommodation they've managed to get for the attack. I guess accommodation is is the number one issue. Um, a town like Animas is not probably blessed with thousands of hotels, there's a few usual chains, but it's not like there's about 15,000 16,000 people do the attack and while some people can drive in given that you have to be here really early in the morning to start and if you're driving you probably want to back time a bit for traffic um, it does make sense to stay locally or at least have someone to drive you and drop you off because I know there are also people staying in Morzine which is obviously a ski resort and has plenty of hotel rooms but then they need to sort of back time it to allow for their 90 minute or so transfer in the morning from their hotel at whatever ungodly hour over to the uh, start in NMS. First first departures at about 7 o'clock, as I said mine's about 7.22 but I've got to be in my pen a good while before that so I'm probably looking at about 6, 6.15, uh, I think 6.45 is the very latest I can be there. Anyway, so I have that to look forward to tomorrow. Back to NMS, get some good amount of food for this evening and uh, we'll face the battles, find somewhere that I can get into for some food and then it'll be bright and breezy for the ride tomorrow. At this point, I should probably describe the route of the ATAP, which, as I've mentioned, starts in Animas and ends in Morzine. It follows the route of stage 14 of the men's Tour de France. So that's 157 kilometers and 4,100 meters of altitude, taking in five different mountain climbs. So the road climbs out of Animas towards the Col de Saxel, the Category 3 first climb of the day, and where I had a couple of days earlier taken a separate route up to a monastery. Then after a swift descent, it's almost instantly onto the Col de Coup, which is the first of our first category climbs. The Col de Coup is 7 kilometres at an average gradient of 7.4% although there are a couple of slightly steeper ramps in the middle there. That's a common theme you're going to be able to see over quite a few of these uh, climbs. Then it goes into the Col de Fer, and that is one of the first, I guess, real tough ones. It's 5.9 kilometres at 7.8%, but the first kilometre averages 10.8% on its own. So although, yes, it's followed by a fairly flat and this is all relative fairly flat section after that um, you do have a couple of these uh, slightly steeper ramps along the way after the Col de Fur there's a reasonably long transition through the uh, valleys until you reach the foot of the fourth of the categorised climbs the Col de la Ramaz 
The Ramaz is the first of the really tough climbs. It's 14.3 kilometers long and an average of 7%. And in the middle, there's a really chunky bit which includes one kilometer where the average is at 11.5%. So this is long and it's pretty tough and it's pretty steep. Then you get a nice descent of that, a bit more of a transition, and then finally it's on to the last climb of the day, the Col de Jouplin. This one is an alt category climb and it's definitely the toughest of the lot. It's 11.6 kilometers at eight and a half percent. And again, instantly you've got this horrible early section which begins at just under 10% for the first kilometer. Then the uh, gradient backs off a bit until you get to the latter part of the climb where suddenly it ramps up and never drops below 9% for the last four or five kilometers. It's this horrible average working against you basically um, until you finally reach the uh, top of the climb um, after that 11 kilometers. In fact, the um, route then drops you down into Morzine off the top of that climb, um, but for safety reasons, what they do is they take your time as it stands at the top of the Col de Joux plan so that no one is racing to get a good time down the uh, descent on the other side, potentially causing accidents or injuries. around 6.30 in the morning and I'm in my pen. The race? The ride? I don't know. I think Tank Maria is a race. There is a winner. Um, it's determined on um, pen numbers and they go from zero. I learned recently there's a zero pen, a 0 to 999, uh, up to pen 16 released at roughly seven and a half minute durations. So I'm in pen three, which means I don't have to wait too long this year. Uh, a little bit less than an hour from the start now. Although I do have to be in my pen, I did have to be in my pen by seven o'clock. Probably gone a little earlier than I need to, but hey. Each of the uh, dossards, each of the bid numbers has a little flag in the rider's name. Um, and last year I had a French flag next to my name, which meant a lot of people thought I was French. This year I do have a Union flag, so uh, people hopefully know that I'm British. Uh, kind of useful for other English-speaking folk really basically to say hello to you. That was said in this particular pen. I'm mostly seeing uh, French and seeing too many Brits around. I did see a guy wearing a British cycling sky branded uh, aero suit, which feels a little bit unnecessary wearing uh, full aero on today's race, unless he's planning something extraordinary. 
think he had a Swiss flag. It was quite hard to see from the distance. So maybe he got it from a uh, velodrome in Lucerne or something like that. Anyway, next time you hear from me, hopefully it'll be at the top of maybe the second coal of the day. Let's see. It's probably worth saying a little bit about the pen system that the organisers of the ATAP use. It's quite similar to systems used in these kind of events all over the world really, but when you sign up you're asked to predict a time. Now, if you've never done this event before, you'll probably have absolutely no idea what time you will be completing it in. Uh, you don't know how fast you're going to climb, nor indeed how fast you're going to descend. So you have a bit of a stab in the dark. But the organisers are pretty good at this stuff, and uh, they then will allocate you a pen based on both what time you think you'll do it in, but also, if you have done it before, they'll look at your history and uh, determine where you start. Now, the fastest riders, the ones who are going to complete the course the quickest, start right at the front and the slowest at the back. And that kind of makes sense for a lot of reasons. You've got 16,000 riders. You don't want all the speed freaks starting at the back and trying to pass another 15,500 riders to get to the front. But that also means that uh, because the start is staggered, that the fastest riders get to leave at 7 o'clock in the morning, whilst the slowest riders don't leave until nearly nine o'clock in the morning two hours later that matters for two key reasons the heat of the day it warms up and it really does warm up in the attack at least in the two editions i've done and also the time cuts and that's really probably the biggest issue because the attacks on closed roads and they can't keep them closed all day so the organizers set uh, time cutoffs at various points across the course of the race and the riders have to have reached those points by the specified times. If they don't, then there's effectively a broom wagon that is, uh, which in this case is a fleet of coaches, that starts removing you from the course basically and putting you and your bike into a coach or, or a truck and taking you to the finish. So for many riders, particularly the uh, ones who are the slowest, that's the thing that they're battling the most time cutoffs all the way through and when you start two hours after the first people your back's already a bit against the wall okay on the bike 69k in there's an uncategorised climb of another kilometre or so to go. Um, done the first. I to toss it up now. One, two, three. Got two major, two major categorised climbs to go. Col de la Ramez and the Jupin. It's about 10.30 in the morning. Generally feeling okay, but it's bloody hot, so you have to keep drinking. I'll do for now. 
Okay, so I am 103 kilometers in. Out of 157, I am also three kilometers from the top of the Col de Ramez, which is the penultimate climb. It's been absolutely brute because um, it's really warm. It's about 20 past 12, so no problem there. It's like to see a few people walk, a lot of people stopping on corners and in shade, a lot of locals handing out water, which is always good. Um, I'm here because uh, the company I'm doing it with has their own water stop, which probably as well, actually, it's a good three kilometer to say from the top. So, push through now. You can see them still climbing in the distance. So, uh, let's see how it goes. Okay, last drink stop and the last climb. Just as you plan to go. It's about 20 past one, so what's that, an hour after my last. My last missive. To go over hose on the way out and give us a bit of a shower. I'm definitely going to make use of that. Just walking around, stretching my legs a little bit. It's, uh, yeah, what is it, 10 kilometers? So, basically, the finish line's at the top, and I'm hoping it's largely speaking all downhill, all the way from there. Again, it's warm, so it's just a question of keeping hydrated, keeping eating, keep having uh, nutrition replenish the salts, all that kind of stuff. Right, I'm going to go and get a shower and try and finish this in. <laughs> ah, that breathless. This is me at the top of the Jupan. Uh, just over the top actually, because they take the time at the top rather than have everyone race down the race down the mountain into Morzine. And it's just as well because I actually need to catch my breath a bit. There's a little lake here. I can see someone has availed themselves of going straight into the lake. Oh man, that was hard. It's 10 to 3, just before probably when I crossed the line. Well, I think I'll have to cover my force at the bottom. It's beeping. By the time I got to the bottom of the Zhu Plan and into Morzine, I wasn't in that much of a rush to record my thoughts right there and then. 
Instead, I got plenty of food and drink and talked the whole event over with some of my fellow competitors. For those interested, my stats of the day showed that I cycled 157 kilometers in 7 hours 25 minutes, that's the chip time, climbing a total of 4,144 meters. That was good enough to place me 3,307th of the 11,800 or so who finished the event out of about 16,000 starters. In my age category, I was 317th of the 1,524 people my age and gender, and I'm happy with that. I burnt through 5,600 calories, which might be a record for me for one day, and had an average power of 183 watts with an overall average speed of 21.0 kilometers an hour, which feels very slow, but obviously that's taken into account both the climbing and descending. Perhaps the scariest number I actually got from the bike computer was the temperature. The minimum temperature, the minimum at seven o'clock in the morning was 18 degrees Celsius, but the average was a fairly heady 31 degrees C, and the maximum I experienced, at least according to my head unit, was a frankly preposterous 45 degrees C. Now, while that might be a bit high, the thing I take from both this year and last year's attack is that acclimatization to the heat is absolutely critical to this event. It really does get very hot, and I saw people struggling all over the place on the hillside. I had two quite large bottles with me on my bike and although that meant I had to carry some extra weight up some of the climbs, it also meant I never was going to run out of water. And while the organisers do put lots of stops in and then there's unofficial stops too along the side of the road, sometimes from some of the uh, other uh, partners of the event have private ones, sometimes there are locals who do sterling work handing out water, but you can still run into trouble. You also get lots of people willing to tip cups of water over your head. You've never had something so good as a cool mountain water running down your back as you struggle up a 10% section of a 10km climb. Kids with super soakers, hoses, it all helps. One note of caution would be the person I saw at the top of the Jus plan who looked like he'd come off. I asked him about his accident and he said that he'd actually been taken out by someone with a powerful hose who accidentally completely wiped out one of his wheels such as the power of the hose anyway take care with those hoses and remember as well i was relatively close to the front of the event you know the top quarter or so uh, alongside the theoretically fitter cyclists further back down the course it would have been even harder those cyclists would have been tackling climbs in the heat two or more hours after me and basically that just means it's getting warmer and warmer for them what really makes this event are the people on the side of the road. Some are locals, often effectively trapped by the event of the day, but out there cheering on the riders nonetheless. Some are friends or families of other riders, and everyone just supports everyone. At one point in the Ramaz, I was slowing a little bit, and a pair of, I think by their flags, that were Estonian women just tipped water on me, and one gave me a, a little push. I didn't need it, but I definitely wasn't going to say no either. Mercifully, I saw few accidents. The biggest problem that I saw with many people was the heat. You want a tree cover, but the sun is high over your heads for much of the event in the middle of the day, and shadows were not long. So lots of people would get off their bikes and find brief shelter from the heat. I always prefer to just keep going, 
just get into that smallest gear if that's what you need to be in and just keep turning it over, turning it over. At one point, a group of guys passed me wearing Team Nigeria cycling jerseys. I don't know if they were from a national group. I get the feeling they might have been, actually. But I got a smile from them as I shouted, Go Nigeria, as they passed me. A couple of them at the front of their group looked especially strong. And one of the things they always say about a region hosting the Tour de France is that it's great for having the roads relayed. And that was definitely true of this route. The roads were amazing, and it felt like at least two-thirds of them, I'm probably over-exaggerating, but it really did feel like that, were completely new. Coming from some fairly rough British roads, they felt wonderful to ride along, and there were no problems on the descents either. Speaking of which, that's always one area I'm a little bit more circumspect about, especially when you're surrounded by lots of other people. Yes, I love a fast descent as much as the next person. You've kind of earned it, right, when you've climbed to the top of a, got to the top of a climb. But I don't know how good my fellow cyclists actually are. You definitely see some lunatics. And it's trusting in those riders if you go fast. So I prefer not to be too insanely fast and ensure I don't come off anywhere. But those descents are still fun. So I guess the question is, would I do the event again? I've done it twice now. And the honest answer is, I'm not sure. The scale of the attack is massive, and having a challenge like that is definitely something that personally drives me. But as I mentioned earlier in this episode, there are other events and other climbs to do, and having done the attack twice now in the Alps, I think I'd like to experience some climbing elsewhere. I'm thinking I might just try something a little less formal, or at least a little smaller in scale. But until then... Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Explore. It was presented and produced by me, Adam Bowie. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burnett.